Hello, everyone. Pierre Daly here. It's early December of 2020, and no doubt you've been following the news about the COVID vaccines. And that's exciting because it means we have a chance to get back to some normalcy in our lives. But behind the scenes of the search for a COVID vaccine, there's so much more than this going on. And the search for a COVID vaccine has both highlighted but also completely overshadowed what was happening in healthcare before COVID exploded into our lives. Behind the scenes, there's a massive wave of disruption and technological advancement that is driving huge growth potential for companies in the genomics and biotech space. It is a revolution, one that will change our lives immeasurably, the genomics revolution. What I'm talking about is companies that are on the verge of major medical breakthroughs. You know that S-curve of technology adoption? Genomics and biotech are just a little bit above the beginning of that sharp perpendicular rise to the left and top of the S-curve. Key inflection points have been passed in the last five years that now give researchers the ability to access, manipulate, and understand the molecular building blocks of the human anatomy. The ramifications are profound. My guests today are Lisa Lake Langley, CEO of Emerge Canada ARC ETFs, and Ali Ehrman, Genomics Revolution Analyst at ARC Invest. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual podcasters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com. This podcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this podcast is intended to be considered as advice. Welcome, Lisa Langley. Welcome, Ali Ehrman. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you on. And I think this is going to be a really interesting very exciting conversation. There's been so much news about what's going on, particularly in the context of the new vaccines that are coming to market. One of the thoughts that seems to be a recurring theme this year in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of the stay-at-home measures and work-from-home measures have really accelerated uh, a great deal of technologies. It's really accelerated the pace at which technologies are being adopted. And I wanted to start off this conversation by saying that one of the things we're going to be talking about is the fact that if this pandemic that we're in right now had, had happened five years ago or, or further than that in the past, that would have been a very unfortunate situation because the amount of time that it would take for the companies that are involved in coming up with vaccines would be multiples longer. When we first heard that it was going to be 18 months, the soonest that seemed, wow, that's forever from now. That's, that's That might as well be 10 years. I wanted to start off with Lisa and talk about your launching of Emerge Canada ARC ETFs, which feels like it was such a long time ago, Lisa. Like, it does like feel it, that way. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? I, 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 I was looking you at You were there. The, we were there yeah. at Inside ETFs in Montreal, and you interviewed Kathy Wood. Exactly. Yeah. And, that, and that feels like that was years and years ago. And then when we were looking at our calendars, I thought it was 2018. No, it was summer of 2019. Uh, Lisa, we met briefly before I sat down to talk to Kathy. Uh, you're no stranger to the investment management industry. You're on both sides of the border. What inspired you to launch Emerge Canada ARC ETFs? And how blown away are you by the rapid turn of events since you've started? So 
Thank you so much, Pierre. It's so nice to talk to you again. And thank you for your early support in July 2019. We were really swinging the bat in a major way at five balls all at once, right? Because a firm that manages so towards innovation and for the future and actively not referencing any type of benchmark or index didn't exist in Canada. True active management, let alone in the area of innovation. It really wasn't popular. It wasn't really well understood. And I can't tell you how many times, even since over the past year and a half, I continue, what index are they using? Okay. They're not using an index. They're using the knowledge of analysts as brilliant as Ali Ehrman, who you're going to interview shortly. That's Kathy Wood and investment team's reference point. They're not looking at past information. So we were eager, having seen the experience in the US and being very close to ARC Invest here and the work that we do for them on the other side of the border, we were eager to have that available in a format that was suitable for Canadian residents and Canadian investors. We really did have a big task ahead of us because five funds all at once isn't necessarily done by the largest fund companies, let alone uh, a brand new startup. We bid off a lot. And then, of course, you know, new fund companies go through the regulatory rules of not being allowed to talk about their performance for the first year. So that also uh, was quite something because we were watching a miracle unfold while we were Going through the the pandemic, we were, of course, watching our performance every single day. And as Allie certainly will explain, Mm -hmm. it's really been extraordinary. And so we were so eager to tell that story. And we couldn't tell the story until July 30th of 2020. So we had to wait, you know, this period of time. And only since we've been able to explain how they've achieved it and the way in which we hope they'll continue to achieve great things and why it was so important to have all five strategies, because genomics is a general purpose technology platform growing at exponential rates. And the five that ARC has identified are the five that we launched with because they really needed to be together so that investors could understand the full story and the the investment process and style of, of ARK Invest. And that was the best way to represent it. We're very pleased, very honored. It's been a big a battle. And sometimes small companies can go to the left and fall down or they can go to the right and succeed. I would say in some unbelievable ways, this pandemic has made people appreciate the underlying reason, raison d'etre of this strategies, of all these strategies in particular, and how important technology is to improving the world, whether it's saving lives and curing diseases and stopping viruses or increasing world food production and helping the aquasphere. There's so many purposes here. We're honored to work with ARK Invest. It's a first start for us in Canada, and uh, we're so excited that we've been able to do it. Can you just remind us what the five different ETFs are that you launched? Now they're nearly one and a half years old. That was quite a big bang that you made at the end of July when you were finally able to share the performance of your ETFs. And so now you've got EARK. Yes. Um, yes, um, that's the the flagship. It follows ARKK in the U.S. and it's really diversified across the themes and it's the best picks. 
We have seen the most asset flows into EARK and all of our ETFs are available in Canadian dollars and US dollars. We've seen the most flows into the Canadian dollar side, which we also think is interesting. Then we have EAGB, such as what Ali will be uh, diving into more deeply, which is the deeper dive, even more stocks that cover genomics and, and biotech. Then we have EAUT, which is all about autonomous technologies. It includes robots and drones and 3D printers, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles. So it's really that industrial theme. Then we have EAFT, and without uh, fintech, you do not have e-commerce. Okay, so right. uh, global payments and all of the payment uh, systems, which is also done very well. Then we also have the strategy. So we have EARK, EAUT, EAGB, and we have EAAI, which is a deep dive in artificial intelligence and its deep learning, which has really been also, it's the second largest asset flow after EARK. So it's been very popular, again, mostly on the Canadian dollar side, exceptionally uh, strong performance. So our four deep dives are fintech and e-commerce, the industrial piece through EAUT. Then we have the deep dive on genomics, and we also have the deep dive on artificial intelligence. And then EARK is really a diversified portfolio across all of them, best picks, if you will. Fascinating. So looking at the performance, it's hard to not realize that the work that Kathy Wood has been doing at ARC with the brilliant people that, that are working with her, including Ali, how that has really paid off. And it's also been very revealing. A lot of this work that was going on in all of these different areas of science have really been brought to the fore this year. And I'm excited to talk about what's going on in genomics and, and biotechnology because I think this is one of those areas where people really have very little understanding of what's going on. Ali, one of the things that you said in a previous conversation that, I, that you had in one of your podcasts was that the last time there was a major vaccine development was mumps. And it, took four, yeah. and it took four years to bring that to market. And, right. <laughs> right. And one of the reasons for that is is that they, obviously in those days, in what was it, 1968 or? Super was it close, 1967. 1967. And the technology to sequence genomes obviously was still in the distant future. It didn't exist in those days. So, Ali, I want to introduce you before we get started, just briefly. And if you can talk about your background a little bit, that would be great. Your background is, is in epidemiology, oncology, and artificial intelligence. You've published numerous papers. You've spent most of your early career involved in clinical research. When did you first realize that the genomics revolution was going to be your wheelhouse? How useful did you discover that your background in medical and clinical research, when it came to transitioning into investment research, when did you realize how useful that was uh, to the genomic sector? That's a really interesting question. I think I realized it really early on, but didn't realize that I had realized it. So when I went into clinical research, I did so like 
very many other people do. You know, how can I have the greatest impact on the most amount of people? And for me, that was in research. I had envisioned how can we cure cancer? And then the reality was, well, I was stuck under a mound of paperwork. There was a ton of grant writing, uh, a ton of protocols, just a lot of paper. And I used to work at uh, a cancer research center in New York City, which was called Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I started to notice that so many of our really successful clinical trials had something along with them called a companion diagnostic. And what that means is that a di- it's a, essentially like a diagnostic test that's used to determine if a therapeutic drug is going to be applicable for a specific person's illness. So in our case, we were looking at cancer, but you can do this for anything. So essentially, the idea is that it's the most targeted and personalized medicine we can perform. So the person has a better odds of survival. And so I just want to give a super quick example on this one, and that would be Herceptin. So Herceptin is a Genentech drug. It's used to treat breast cancer. And essentially how it works is it attaches itself to the HER2 receptor which is just sitting on the surface of a cancer cell, and it blocks the growth signals. So with this, the tumor will either not grow or it can slow its growth. But this is going to have more efficacy if a person is HER2 positive. So we know that they have HER2. So HER2 is essentially this protein that promotes the growth of cancer cells. And when it's tested, you can see which tumors are actually HER2 positive And maybe those people would be more likely to respond to the Herceptin or this HER2-directed treatment. And what's really interesting is that the more we can get these personalized, really specific treatments for people that we know will respond, it will create so many new things. So it will create better patients on the clinical trial, which is better for the patients, better for the doctors, but also better for the approval process. So approval processes could be expedited as well. If you're getting people that will respond to the drugs that you are trying to commercialize. So once really realizing that the future is personalized medicine, genomics is just so imperative to that field, right? The more we understand about how and why our genes mutate or change or are the way that they are, the more we can find a way to evade or trick or kill cancer cells or other serious diseases. So I think I knew the problem when I started out in my career, and I figured out that the solution was genomics, but maybe figured that out a little bit later. And just to touch on your second question, which is about my background and how helpful that is to investment research. I think this is a really important question because I think it's one that isn't really well understood. It's also really a good place to highlight here how differentiated our research approaches at ARC. So at ARC, what I think as Lisa mentioned, we focus on really five different platforms. So AI, robotics, energy storage, DNA sequencing, which is where I and Simon focus the most of our time, and blockchain. And we believe that these technologies are really going to disrupt how the world currently does things and just deliver tremendous growth and potential just over a long period of time. And so we really focus on this research approach that's very top down, bottom up, and we really evaluate companies. And when we do so, we produce this very diligent due diligence process where we score companies on things like people management and culture, ability to execute, moat, 
et cetera. But we also really try to understand the science behind the technologies. And I think that because of that, my background in medical and clinical research has been really imperative to understanding the companies that we kind of dive deeply into. Yeah, you're doing a really, an incredible job of educating the marketplace as well. I, I have to admit, I, I have an ongoing interest in health-related issues and healthcare and looking into how different things work. This is a whole other level. And I found it fascinating sort of reading through the white papers and listening to the podcast that, that you've uh, produced. What really stood out was the fact that a lot of your a lot of your explanations really made a lot of sense and your guests are able to explain how these new technologies work for example it was fascinating to find out the brief history of next generation sequencing that this started out as a nine digit state funded project and that the cost of sequencing the genome has fallen from hundreds of millions of dollars into the sub 1000 level down to, I think it was $600. Is that correct? So um, it's even crazier. <laughs> it's <laughs> dropped and that's okay. You do not need to know all of our white papers, but that's so impressive. But yeah, it's about since 2003, the cost to sequence a human genome basically has dropped from about $3 billion. So a little bit more to less than $1,000. And it's continuing to drop, maybe even lower now. It's, yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. It was fascinating just to see that means more and more usage will be possible for this. And, and if you just go back five years, it wasn't possible. I thought you guys were bang on when you did a podcast in March where you spoke about Moderna. And seeing as Moderna just announced its vaccine with 95% efficacy, I think a week ago now, a week and a half ago, it was striking. That was a month after the news about COVID really broke out at the third week of February. And in the third week of March, you guys were talking about Moderna and its work with mRNA sequencing. Is it sequencing? They use uh, mRNA technology, yeah. mRNA technology. And that's what's that's been what has brought that vaccine to market within a very short space of time. What really stood out to me was that they were already on this track uh, a month into the pandemic. Yeah, and I would argue that our podcasts take some time to uh, roll out. So <laughs> that podcast guys... probably, <laughs> not to toot our own horns, but that might have been even a little bit earlier. But I think that sort of goes back to our investment thesis, right? So we look, we are not a firm that looked at, hey, this is COVID. How can we capitalize on that and invest in companies that have COVID vaccines or COVID therapies like Regeneron? Instead, we said, okay, what are the technologies that work and how is this pandemic going to showcase that? And that's actually just what happened. So we believed that the mRNA technology would work. It just hadn't been showcased yet and it hadn't had enough clinical validation in terms of clinical trials for people to know that it works. And ours was a backwards approach, whereas we, we believed that for some time and everyone else caught up with our thinking. And that's why, and I think this was even the title of the podcast, is that in times of sort of tribulation or difficult times, innovation really gains traction. And our founder, Kathy Wood, and CEO and CIO says that all the time. And that's that when we have a situation and where we need to innovate and get things 
to be better for the situation that we're currently in, things are expedited. And I think there is no better example than vaccine space. Lisa, you've been pounding the pavement since last summer of 2019, yes. Let me just to be clear. And before, before the news about COVID broke and before these four main areas of disruptive technology really broke out onto the scene in the spring of this year, what kind of challenges were you facing with getting advisors on board with these ideas? I think people were already tilting towards liking technology stocks. Yeah, um, very true. And, but maybe more in the mainstream with Apple and Google, but the FANG stocks. But how was it when it came to talking about companies like Tesla or in the pharmaceutical area or automation, AI? How was the challenge in those areas? One of the things that we've done to help advisors, it's a lot to take in. The ARC investment process and what they're doing is very deep. Their expertise is bar none. Really, they stand out globally. And what Kathy Wood and team have designed is really extraordinary. In so doing, sometimes it's a lot to tell this uh, story about how they work so differently. And certainly Ali can explain further, but making sure that they have long range forecasts for five and 10 years and that they're really operating on the sense of urgency. What did the pandemic create a sense of urgency around vaccines? Prior to that, we've been communicating to when we didn't have that dialogue in March, we were communicating the need for personalized medicine, the need for curing cancer. These needs have been as urgent, but they've been just so accelerated more recently. It's the learning curve about all the different stocks, the Editas and the CRISPR and the different holdings, and being able to explain why each one of those is such an integral part of the strategy. And so sometimes uh, advisors can feel a little overwhelmed with just a huge amount of, and certainly they're professionals and they're capable of absorbing a lot of information, but it is a lot all at once. And so we offer to do webinars with them and webinars with their clients so that uh, they don't have to feel they're, they're on the spot to explain why someone just won a Nobel Prize or what is CART's T treatment. And so in all of these different areas, it, you can get a little bit into the weeds, but it just goes to the sophistication of the research model and their timing. ARC is doing long-term trends that are growing exponentially at exceptional rates, and they have high hurdle rates on all their individual stocks. So we are trying to get them to understand the overall investment process. And then you have these different slices of innovation. And then truly, Pierre, the biggest challenge that we had was prior to the end of July, we couldn't discuss performance. And that's something that, okay, does how is that working? We could cite certainly the U.S. example of how it's worked so very well, but really fairly in print, having something to share with their investors was very difficult. And when you have numbers as of yesterday, the Emerge Arc Genomics and Biotech ETF was the second best performing ETF in Canada wow. for year to date and also was the number one performing for total return for one year, 125.69% for one year and 115.2% year to date. So that was as of yesterday. And right behind it, 
are it's four brothers and sisters. Okay, all five of the <laughs> the ETFs are in the top eight with numbers just slightly less than genomics and biotech. But it's really the amazing story of how these brilliant analysts have such a an an amazing view to making the world a better place for health or for avoiding texting accident. The average person who dies in a car texting accident is a 24-year-old. That robotics are not reducing human employment, maybe changing it, but not reducing it. So there's a lot of good news stories here and with tremendous results. That's a big thing. I can't remember the last time I was as excited about an active fund manager as I am about, about ARC. I think so much time and energy has been spent in the last 10 to 15 years touting the efficacy of investing in indexes. One of the things I miss, and, and that's from having been an advisor at one time in, in my career and then being a wholesaler, one of the things I miss is having really great stories about the people in the industry being able to talk about or to point to the to a particular individual or firm and say that's that's one that's one smart approach or that's really that's a really exciting thing that they're doing and i think that's that speaks to to Kathy Wood and that speaks to Arc and and its brilliant team of analysts one of the things that that i i really wanted to highlight was we spoke to James Wang as well in the fall of last year and one of the things that struck me about James and also you, Ali, is that you both come from the exact fields that you're part of the team analyzing. In James's case, he had formerly worked at NVIDIA. And in your case, you've worked at several of the finest cancer research facilities, organizations in the world. I'm speaking of Memorial Sloan Kettering. But to have actually come from a clinical background and be able to look at it from the other end, from the uh, capital markets point of view, that must be exciting for you, I'm guessing, Ali. Yeah, it's really exciting for me. And actually, as you guys were talking, I I was thinking of another differentiation, and it actually includes James. So it's topical. We work really well cross-functionally. So one of the things that also goes with our thesis is that We don't believe that DNA sequencing is just going to thrive on its own. We believe that there's a convergence between all of these technologies that make them superior. So for example, we might have time to market improvements for drugs and failure reduction rates for drugs to go between different levels of clinical trials because of artificial intelligence, CRISPR, which Lisa touched on briefly, which is a gene editing tool. She mentioned some of the companies and a Nobel Prize. So mm-hmm. maybe that's a spoiler alert. And then, of course, also next-gen sequencing. And I really cover the therapy aspect for ARC in terms of gene editing, stem cells, immuno-oncology. And then I have a partner analyst, Simon Barnett, and he covers diagnostics and tools. We converge on a ton of different companies because, like I said, a lot of the clinical trials are not just having a therapeutic intervention, but they're also having a diagnostic companion. So a lot of our names just converge naturally. I work with James Wang a lot because a lot of the companies that I work with are platform-based companies. And so they employ AI on their platform. And a lot of companies that are doing that are like discovery platforms. 
or drug discovery candidate platforms. So they're using AI or machine learning or deep learning to find better drug targets to get to the clinic quicker. And I think it was Sam, who is the CEO of CRISPR, who once gave me this analogy that I really liked, which was, think of it like you're on a football field and the football goals, sorry, I am Canadian also, so my football analogy might be terrible, but I'm going to try. So you have the football goal and you're kicking footballs into it. And that's drug discovery. You're doing with the best of your knowledge, what we think the drug will work for the best type of patient for that drug. So you're kicking those goals. But what if we could make that net wider? Or I guess you don't call it a net for football. But what if we could make that goal larger? I warned you about the football (laughs) analogy. We lost our team ages ago. But if you could make that goal wider, you would have a much better shot of actually getting that football past the goal. And so a lot of these companies that are using artificial intelligence and deep learning into their platforms are making stronger, better decisions on which drugs to pursue. And that makes that goal bigger. And that makes more drugs come to clinic quicker. Really interesting stuff. But I would say that none of our platforms exist in a vacuum. Even Tasha Keeney, who you might know as well, who focuses a lot on autonomous and 3D printing, we've done some thoughts together just about how 3D printing can impact the healthcare market. I've seen some things about creating artificial valves, artificial heart valves. So there's a lot of really interesting things, but I think a big differentiator for ARC is a convergence that we have between the technologies and between deep domain expertise within the analyst team. Yeah, and I think I kind of messed up the introduction, but what I was what I was trying to get at was that all of these things that are happening now, I was having a conversation with somebody, I can't remember who it was now, but I was saying, I said something that initially it sounded like it sounded a little stupid maybe initially or a little not well thought out, but I just said, I said, we're really lucky that this thing happened this year, that COVID happened this year. We're not lucky that it happened, but we're lucky that in the grand scheme of things, when something like this happens, you want to be able to deal with it. We're, we're lucky because all these things that are going on around us, this technology that we're talking about today, the disruption and in, in technology that's happening that you guys are, are on top of, it wasn't available five or 10 years ago. It was nascent, it was happening, but it, it really, we weren't at the stage where it was in a usable form, but it, it is today. And CRISPR editing, this is the, the discussion that we had with James about Tesla, which was that there was a time delay issue. Definitely. And it's not that it's not going to happen. It's a matter of when, not if, but if something like COVID had happened five or 10 years ago, we wouldn't have been in a position to deal with it the way we are today. And that goes back to what you're saying is that this convergence uh, of technologies is happening where you have AI, you have chip technologies that are making it possible, like from companies like NVIDIA, you have the processing power, all these things, all these ideas that, that you guys are developing as an investment thesis have depended on technology and that's converging right now, right? A lot of convergence is happening. It's what you guys call, I don't know if it's, I think it was Kathy Wood who's referred to it as singularity. I mean, it's an AI term, right? It's something that's out in the future where all these technologies that we're talking about right now converge into an ability to, in in this case, what we're talking about right now with genomics and, and healthcare and biotechnology, it converges to make it possible for the medical and science community to find cures for uh, disease 
And that's really what I was trying to point out, which is that the time is now. It's really all this stuff is happening now. The point of all that we're talking about, and that's that marginal changes in the return on investments that have been made to date could add trillions of dollars in value to the value of the companies involved in the work. All of these changes that are taking place with the cost of technology and the the cost of developing therapies, all of these things that are happening will lead to an increase in value in the equity market in the trillions of dollars over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And we can touch on some of those technologies that you mentioned also. And the why now is is the perfect question. And you're 100%. We just didn't have the ability to do these things five, 10 years ago because the technologies just didn't exist. And so the perfect example of that is that the first SARS epidemic, the virus was sequenced in about six months. Whereas in today, or I guess at the beginning of the pandemic, the virus was sequenced in just a few days. And that has been, I think, the biggest differentiation because we're, we've been able to get these vaccines to market so quickly, mainly because of that. And then I think what's super interesting too is just the mRNA technology. And we touched on it a little bit, but I think we'd be almost remiss to not dive in a little deeper because I feel like it is the biggest kind of hot topic slash surprise of 2020 for most people. And this just shows also why I think we're just so different, right? So we liked the technology. As you mentioned, it was in our podcast pretty early into the pandemic. We didn't invest in the company because they have a COVID-19 vaccine. We invest in this company prior to COVID-19. And the company that we invest in for mRNA technologies is Arcturus Therapeutics. But we were already invested because we just believe that this technology will work. And now it's just getting its moment in the sun, but center stage because of the power of the capabilities that it harnesses. I loved this comparison. This was made on Twitter by Jesse Chinney, and it was a great one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it with his permission. I retweeted it. And it was that mRNA is going to disrupt the medical field like Tesla disrupted the EV market. I just loved it because it just shows... Tesla, what they did for the EV market was there was something that consumers just couldn't understand. They finally got it. And now EV is exponentially growing. So I think that's going to be pretty similar for the mRNA market. We didn't really understand it or consumers didn't really understand it. And now that people are starting to understand it, it's also going to grow and has grown. But I think just to dig a little deeper... I don't know if people really understand what an mRNA is. So I'm going to just do no, they don't. <laughs> with five seconds on this. Yeah. So, um, so mRNA actually stands for messenger ribonucleic acid. That's not important. And no one ever has to remember that again. But what is important is that it has a super important function in biology, which is that it's a molecule that carries the genetic code, or I think of it as like an instruction manual. Or if you like to cook, you can think of it as a recipe. And basically what it does is it goes from DNA to ribosomes, which essentially are like cells that can make proteins. So I always like to think of it as like a a sequence where you have DNA, then you have RNA, and then you have your proteins. And these all have incredibly important functions. And it's just been really incredible to watch on the sidelines as all this happens. But the reason that this has been really exciting as a vaccine, as a potential therapeutics or therapeutic is because you don't actually need the virus. So 
typically how we would give a vaccine was a little piece of a dead virus or a synthetic virus, which is a newer approach. That's a more traditional approach. But once you have the virus sequence, you can create the vaccine the next day, the next minute, as so many of these companies did. And these just differ because they're just different mechanisms. This allows us to be much more nimble, much quicker. And so I think it's just so fascinating, the technology. And I think mRNA has a lot of really interesting, differentiated approaches. I know we've seen in the news that people are quite concerned about the temperature for mRNA vaccines. So one thing that you know I think is fascinating is, okay, let's take a problem and let's create a solution. So I'm very into patenting. It's a bit of a random fact there, but I love patenting. I love seeing a problem and saying, how can we fix it? And companies are starting to do that. And one way that they're doing that is through a process called lyophilization. Again, do not have to remember that word. It's a mouthful. But what it does is it flash freezes the vaccine. And so you wouldn't need to be worried about the temperature. And a company like Arcturus Therapeutics, again, they are doing this in their clinical trial, which I think is quite beneficial for them to be able to test it in that way. That Pfizer has said they're going to do this also, but they won't be able to test it in their clinical trials, probably because they're so far into them. But basically what it does is it takes out all the water. So you're left with this powder. And then when you want to inject someone, you put water in. So that's a very simplistic way of thinking about it. But it's such an innovative way to to combat this issue of storage. So I think it's just incredibly interesting what's happening uh, in the biotech sphere right now. (laughs) It sounds like Nescafe. (laughs) <laughs> I Incredible. Yeah. Did you ever have the pink, the pink uh, powder that was like a, a strawberry? No. Okay. We used to always have instead of the hot cocoa, Nestle's yeah. Quick Strawberry. Yes. Did you have it? Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was a Canadian thing or not. Anyway. It might have been a mix, actually. Yeah. Both sides of the border. Yeah. I hope so. wouldn't want anyone to be deprived of that. So who do you think is going to win the battle? Okay. Is there going to be one winner or is this going to be the first time we have multiple vaccines? Lisa, great question. It's the question on everyone's mind, but I, I think it will be multiple vaccines. I don't think there will be one winner. Also, if you think about it, 95% efficacy means that 5% of people won't respond. So it means that there needs to be an option for those 5% of people. And I do think it's going to be multiple sort of shots on goal. I think therapies are still going to be important. I hope that everyone's not going to just shift towards a vaccine and, and not try to think about new and innovative therapeutic approaches that we could take. But I do think that Arcturus Therapeutics has a really interesting, differentiated approach I obviously think that the mRNA vaccines are going to be pretty successful in this vein. We know the FDA has come out with a 50% efficacy bar. And so it's basically impossible, I would think. But I guess I'll hedge my language a little bit there. But I think it's you know extremely likely that Moderna and Pfizer will be approved. I think this has validated the mRNA platforms, which is just incredible for science. And following them, I think we'll have maybe some smaller companies. I've heard that Translate Bio, uh, along with Sanofi, are working on a potential mRNA vaccine. They're further back, starting their phase one. But I've heard that they might do a one-shot dose. 
which is what Arcturus Therapeutics is doing. I actually think if if any company can be successful in a one-shot dose, that will just be really pretty revolutionary because I don't know if you've seen, but there's been a ton of uh, surveys that have come out asking people, how willing are you to take the vaccine? And the ones that I've seen have all been done in the United States. So I'd actually be curious to see if there is a difference in Canada. But from the ones I've seen, it's been about a 50% would take the vaccine. And so that's going to be another hurdle that that we're going to have to encounter. And I think when you have a two-dose vaccine 30 days apart, I think that's more of a challenge than a one-dose vaccine. I think someone who takes a two-dose vaccine I'm even wondering, okay, you take your first dose and then do you feel like maybe you're immune and you start going out and you're like, I'm starting my vaccine journey. And so maybe I'm going to go out now and then maybe I forget to take my second dose. So I think it's, I think those differentiators are, are going to be really important. I know Jane J was also uh, working on a one dose vaccine, but we haven't heard a ton of the companies working on those. So hopefully, We'll hear more, but I think that differentiation might be a really big success story if it happens. It was Moderna that was a single dose, right? Moderna is a two dose. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. Moderna is a two dose and it's 100 micrograms. So it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest dose, which is as opposed to, let's say, CureVac is 12 micrograms, Arcturus is 7.5, Pfizer is 30. And I do think from the data, we're seeing that these reactions to the vaccine are, are happening alongside a higher dose. And I, I think we need to be really diligent about safety, too, because you're injecting it into otherwise healthy humans. That's a great comment. I just don't, what about this Sputnik vaccine? Is that was that a real vaccine? Is that <laughs> something that's really out there? Yeah, I just wonder. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. We can only talk about what we've seen from it. And and surprisingly, the data doesn't look half bad, but it's hard to comment on where it came from, where it originated from, okay. what are the details about it. But it's certainly been a really interesting 2020 for biotech. And that's been one of the you know more interesting stories, I think. And just for anyone who doesn't know, that vaccine is the Russian vaccine that's in development. So not interested anyone you mentioned the survey. We we did a survey with advisors about whether or not they would take a vaccine, and, and we had a thousand responses to it. The response was 65% yes, and wow. the rest were no or I'm not sure. Was that all in Canada? Uh, it may have been about 5% U.S., but mostly Canadian advisors. And was there any place where they could say why they would not take it or would take it? No, we didn't have an open-ended box where you could write your answer, but it was uh, a hard yes or a hard no. And the third option was, I'm not sure about vaccines. I'd be so interested if you redid the survey and said, yes, no, why? And then if you're willing to take the vaccine, which company would you want to take? (laughs) I think it sounds funny, but I think I've been getting asked by a lot of people, if you were to take the vaccine, which company would you want to take? And I think we may not have a choice, right? We live where we live and and the options that are going to be provided are going to be what's available for our country. But I I do think that's an interesting level that we've never had before. The flu vaccine is uh, 40 to 60% effective. But yeah, we all take it. It's not we're like, 
oh, I'm not going to take that one. That one's no good. I'll wait for the other company. So it's an interesting uh, change where it enables consumers to be really able to fight for their what they want to be taking. What I also think could be interesting is that some of the companies have their own flu vaccines in development. And maybe we don't know about durability really for the vaccines yet, but maybe if this is something that we need to take annually, are companies then going to create their own flu vaccines and make a combination COVID flu vaccine? And then are you going to have a choice with that? So I think there's a lot of really interesting and complex parts to the whole vaccine space. There is. That's it's fascinating. I want to talk about next generation sequencing. I think we started off talking about sequencing, but around it. But what's your thesis on next generation sequencing? How we believe in most companies is we look for companies that are or technologies that are the cost is declining precipitously, but the demand is going up at a crazy rate. And so they're at this this inflection point where it is just a very high growth opportunity. And so when we think about next-gen sequencing, we think that revenues are going to grow about 43% at an annual rate from about 3.5 billion to about 21 billion in 2024. So at a very high rate. We also think that how this is going to happen is next generation sequencing will become a standard thing. You'll go in to your oncologist, and they'll say, oh, have you done your genome sequencing? And that will be a completely normal thing. Whereas now I think it's becoming more and more prevalent, but it's not going, it's not half as prevalent as it can be in the future. It's just also going to introduce more science into healthcare and decision-making. It's going to really enable, as we touched on earlier, this personalized medicine. And it's also really going to accelerate this drug discovery. And it's going to allow for the patients that get into clinical trials to be the patients that will do best on that therapy, which, as I mentioned, will just accelerate approvals and accelerate really the technology and its possibility. We believe that really the number of whole human genomes sequenced per year is going to probably scale about 110% at an annual rate. So you know, it, yeah. So it's pretty remarkable. And that's just, it's just based on clinical adoption of molecular diagnostics. Um, so, yeah. So that, that, that's from 2.6 million in 2019 yes. to over 100 million tests used, consumed in 2024. That's right. Who are the companies that are at the forefront of using next gen sequencing? we would probably highlight here Illumina and Vitae. Those are probably two of the really sort of strong companies in the area. We also think that sequencing tests are going to go towards liquid biopsies, solid tumor profiling, germline testing. There's going to, it's just going to expand beyond. And so as we continue to see the expansion of these pipelines, it's going to be a moving target to see which companies will accelerate into it. And my colleague, Simon Barnett, covers a lot of the sort of sequencing tools companies. And then I cover a lot of their sort of therapeutic counterparts. Yeah. So it's really fascinating. And it's I think, a good I think, I, I, sorry to interrupt you, um, oh. Ali. I, speaking of liquid biopsies, I'm aware that biopsies historically have been the invasive kind where they go in and, and, and pluck a piece of tissue from inside of you. 
Right. And it's the very reason why a lot of people end up waiting too late right. or, or, or never going for a biopsy or never going for cancer testing and then finding out all too late that they've developed cancer. Right. But with liquid biopsies, you're eliminating that fear of or the pain factor of going for a biopsy. Even if it's not painful, it's this, the idea that an invasive biopsy is an invasion that stops people, that, that liquid biopsies would actually encourage people more freely to go and get cancer testing done. I was fascinated by the idea that tumors, if you indeed have uh, tumors present, that they shed fragments of DNA that can be discovered in the liquid biopsies. I think that was exciting. And, and I can see where I can imagine that would be a driving factor of demand for these sequencing tests. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. That is correct. And I would say that there's a lot of positive and then some caution there. So the positive is exactly what you're saying. So recurrence monitoring could magnify the annual screening volume. And based on Simon Barnett's past research, it could be by 40x. Bladder mm. could be about 3 million, prostate 4.5 million, breast 12 million. So it could really magnify the amount of people that get screening, which is so crucial. At Sloan Kettering, I was doing lung cancer research. Lung cancer is one of the most challenging because people don't know they have cancer. There aren't right. a lot of symptoms. And then when they present, a lot of times people think maybe they have pneumonia or they have a cough. And then you say, oh no, you have cancer. And the person is just oftentimes flabbergasted on the late stage of cancer. So it's more difficult to treat when they could have come in and a lot earlier had there been symptoms. Early monitoring is so crucial. And even I remember when there, the guidelines had changed for screening procedures and they were telling people to come in a little bit more often, a little bit younger. And the uptake in screening probably didn't change that much. It's really difficult to get people to go in for a CT scan that they think is probably not necessary. But with yeah. current monitoring, we can get like 18 million people in. We can get over 104 million people in thinking about some of those disease groups I mentioned. And so the idea is that it's a really important tool that oncologists can have. I caution with, we need to be very optimistic about this, but I would caution with, we want to make sure that the cancers we're catching would actually turn into cancer, which sounds like a weird thing to say. But if you tell someone, hey, we think you might have cancer, we're going to watch it. There's a lot of things that come along with that. There's cost to that individual in terms of testing. There's cost to their insurance company. There's also emotional duress that comes to that person. And that will affect their lives in ways that we can't understand or predict. And there are also the physician's time that they're going to have to spend with that patient who their tumor did not metastasize their tumor didn't turn into a cancer because some tumors can be benign, which means that they are totally fine on their own. They're not cancerous. They're not going to replicate and cause havoc on your body. And so I think there is this really important sort of paradigm here where on the one hand, we want to get people in and get their screening done as early and as often as possible in a very sort of non-invasive way. And then on the other hand, we want to make it so we're not increasing burden on our healthcare system, increasing emotional duress to patients, and catching tumors that may not actually be developed into tumors. What you're talking about, Ali, is going for, for early detection or cancer testing 
is stressful in itself. It's the suspense of finding out whether you do or do not have cancer. But this will definitely relieve the stress of having to go for testing in the first place. Exactly. If, yeah. if proven that we can find tumors in a, in a safe uh, way, then definitely. And the evidence that we're seeing certainly suggests that's going to be the case. And, you know, new, new techniques are coming up to, to survey for tumors as well. The more we continue to perfect these, the better we'll be. My note of caution is just always that we don't want to find every benign tumor, right? Yeah. The best example for that is thyroid cancer. So we're now finding and taking out so many more thyroids than we ever were, but the mortality rate is the same. So what's important to look at for me is how many lives are you saving? Quality life is also important, but at the end of the day, I think most about mortality. And so I want to know that I'm saving uh, a life by doing all of the sort of screening. So CRISPR gene editing technology it's part of this equation. I know you guys have said that it could be the next major breakthrough in medicine this century. Can you speak to that? I definitely can. There, the CRISPR is a really interesting technology. It's a gene editing technology that hopefully can intend to try and potentially cure chronic diseases that, that plague us all, cancer actually being one of them. If we find cancers early, if it's CRISPR that cures them quickly, so we don't need to find them as early. It's going to be a combination of all of the of those differing factors. And actually, as Lisa alluded to before, Emmanuel Charpentier, who is the co-founder of CRISPR Therapeutics, and Jennifer Doudna, who is the uh, co-founder of Intellia Therapeutics and previously Editas, they both won the Nobel Prize this year uh, in chemistry for developing this gene editing tool. Essentially, what gene editing is, it's changing genetic material of a living organism. So you can add something, you can delete something, you can insert something. And CRISPR-Cas9 is really the most researched. So it's being used, there's tons of papers on it. It's being used really widely in research. And so that's the one that we know about the most. And the Cas is the enzyme, of course, that does the cutting. Or I like to think of it as like a molecular scissor. I think it's been called that by others as well. So the CRISPR-Cas9 actually comes from a naturally occurring genome editing system that exists in bacteria. And it uses the same process really in humans. So it's actually, it's amazing that they discovered it, but it's also so intuitive almost. So the modified RNA is used to find the DNA sequence that you want to change or whatever you want to do to it. And then the enzyme, which in this case we said was the Cas9, even though there are others, just to specify, will actually cut the DNA at the specific location that it should. As we know, there are things that we still need to be cautious about, like off-target edits, meaning that something was cut or altered or changed that shouldn't have been. But a company called CRISPR Therapeutics, which I mentioned just briefly because Emmanuel Charpentier is the co-founder, they've seen some pretty good data in patients that have hemoglobinopathies. And what those are, again, don't need to remember that term if it's a little bit of a, a mouthful, but those are blood diseases. And oftentimes patients with sickle cell anemia have had to go to the hospital oftentimes for blood transfusions. I think their first patient was treated about 12 months ago with the therapy, and they have not had to go to the hospital for that, for any sort of blood transfusions, which is pretty remarkable. And if you have not done so already, 
Her name is Victoria Gray. She's done some pretty amazing NPR interviews. I would, I definitely, you know, think that you should check that out. And just because you're mentioning it, a really interesting paper came out. I think it was this week. It was with Tel Aviv University. And they're actually using CRISPR-Cas9 to treat metastatic cancer. Metastatic cancer essentially means that your cancer has spread to other areas of your body. This comes out of the laboratory of Dan Peer. And it's just incredible if you think about it, how we're moving science forward. So as Lisa mentioned earlier on the call too about CAR-T therapy, that's basically when, depending on what you're getting, you get either a blood test or you get your tumor taken out, and then you take cells from that, you grow them, they're genetically engineered in the lab, and then you put that back into your body if it's autologous, which means using your own cells. Not to overcomplicate, but you can also use a donor cell, which makes things a little easier called allogeneic therapy. But basically, the important part here is that if you're able to do this procedure that they're talking about from Tel Aviv, it means curing the cancer or hopefully getting rid of this metastatic cancer within the body. So in vivo, which to me is just quite revolutionary. Again, my note of caution is that this was done on animals. So it could, it may or may not translate well to humans. But if you see the possibility of gene editing, it just feels like the possibilities are endless. And another possibility I would just quickly highlight is diabetes. So I've seen a number of companies that are putting on their pipeline, a lot of it is preclinical right now, but using gene editing to potentially cure diabetes. And, and wow. diabetes, as we know, is, is one of the you know, highest healthcare spends, right? So not only would this be incredible for patients, but as a society, our healthcare spend would likely decrease. So there's just a ton of really interesting applications for CRISPR. And I think we're just skimming the surface here. It's so vast and it's fascinating. Who are the leading companies in the CRISPR domain? So I, th- I would say from our perspective, CRISPR Therapeutics is certainly one of them. Like I mentioned, co-founded by Emmanuel Charpentier, which I think is right. you know pretty incredible that their founder is a Nobel laureate. They also just have a very robust pipeline. They also, as I mentioned, have good clinical data in humans, which is pretty remarkable to have it at this stage. And you know, we talked about a little bit earlier in the podcast, why now? We have clinical data now, right? Like before this, you can't put these things in humans before doing the proper clinical trial testing. And so I think that's one huge reason that this is going to start to potentially emerge more and more because we're seeing actual clinical data. So I think their robust pipeline, the Nobel laureate, another huge one is their IP protection. So if anyone uses CRISPR-Cas9, including actually this this Tel Aviv example that I gave, there are a foundational three companies that own most of the IP on CRISPR-Cas9. And that's CRISPR Therapeutics, Intellia, and Editas. So those companies would have to figure out (laughs) who owns which IP, but it's certainly going to be interesting. But I think you'd be remiss not to mention the IP landscape with CRISPR. It's quite vast. And no decision has really been made, which is actually another really interesting point about the Nobel Prize, because the Nobel Prize was given, but there's still ongoing legal battles between the IP and between these companies. And I would also argue Intellia Therapeutics is really interesting. I would say they're leaders in the in vivo approach, 
although they do have ex vivo approaches. So in vivo is the editing or, or therapy does the edits within the body, whereas ex vivo, they do it outside of the body. And then the interesting thing about that is, at least for ex vivo, you can check that the cells work before, whereas put them in vivo. That's why we're still early stage there. But they had some really interesting data that I would share really quickly. It was that the Oglionucleotide Therapeutic Society, so that's a mouthful, we could just call it OTS. And essentially what they showed was that you could suppress this gene called the TTR gene. What that gene does is it causes a buildup of abnormal proteins, and those proteins are called amyloids. And the company showed that they could get the edit to proliferate and also to be durable um, in non-human primates, so like monkeys, when compared to their control groups. Why is this so interesting? One, the first human patient was actually announced in November. So this is now in humans, which I find really exciting and interesting. They showed that even when an animal has a hypotectomy, which means essentially you take out a piece of the liver or the whole liver, so the cells still continued to proliferate and the edit was still there, which means that there was a high uh, amount of editing and durability there because the whole liver was taken out. So this is just a huge leap forward, in my opinion, of the potential that we have for in vivo editing. I think you'll get this is my flow usually, but I always give a really positive kind of uh, outlook and then I caution. So here's the words of caution, which is this is still a really new technology there are many sort of exciting futuristic approaches that we can do for gene editing, but we need to always caution with, we need to learn more. We need to do more tests, more clinical trials, but we are just so inspired by the notion of this possibility to have a one-shot cure for potentially chronic diseases. And obviously in disease populations that have a large unmet need. It's it's mind blowing. Mind blowing. I know. <laughs> it's actually, mind blowing. There's one more area. I don't know if we have time to talk about bioinformatics, but I just wanted to say I, I I get the sense that that it's also very early in this segment of the market because these technologies are coming on stream very quickly and our awareness in the marketplace is coming on as well. But we're so far we've been more exposed to the bigger, the large cap names like Pfizer, but. We really, I don't think we've been exposed as much to the the smaller uh, biotech names, the disruptors that that we've been talking about today. So I, I just wanted to point out that the potential here is massive, right? Am I am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I completely agree, and that's why I love that analogy where they compared the mRNA tech to what that could do to disrupt the medical field to what Tesla did to to the EV field. And I think just to maybe qualify this a little bit, one, I just wanted to quickly explain what bioinformatics is in case anyone, you know, doesn't know that's listening. So essentially, it's, it's a subdiscipline of biology and computer science. And what it looks to do is really store and analyze and give off biological data, often dealing with DNA. And we think this is a super interesting opportunity. And like I mentioned, most of my companies, I would say, have some type of bioinformatics, right? The analogy of the goalpost, that's using bioinformatics, that's using different AI applications to create better drugs in a shorter, more efficient amount of time. And we were just working on 
thinking about the next generation of cell therapy. And even though we've only begun to scratch the surface of the first generation, that's how crazy and quick this is happening. We're thinking about the second one already. And so when we were, we started to think about how are all of these pieces going to intersect? So things we spoke about like allogeneic cells versus autologous cells. So using a donor cells versus using your own. Obviously, as you can imagine, using your own is going to be more expensive. It's going to be more taxing. It's going to be less efficient from a manufacturing scalability perspective. And then we thought about late stage versus early stage, because late stage, there's less of an opportunity. There's less patients don't do as well. Early stage, for the most part, hopefully, and as liquid biopsy expands, we'll get more and more tumors from early stage. And first, we typically test therapies on liquid tumors before we do so on solid tumors. So we're seeing now that we're going from late stage to early stage, so more total addressable market there. And we're also seeing it go a little bit from liquid tumors. And as we expand to doing further clinical trials and getting into there, we're going into solid tumors. And as we do that, what we see is that, you know, allogeneic and molecular innovations could essentially open up about $250 billion in incremental oncological opportunities for cell therapies. So as you say, there is tons of opportunity in, in the biotech space. And we agree, you definitely hear about the larger pharmaceutical companies, which I will say, we do think some of those have great opportunity in terms of differentiated approaches. I like to say pharmaceutical companies have the budget. So partnering with a pharmaceutical company makes you a stronger company. Sometimes obviously not if you want to wholly own the asset, but there's a partnership with Intellia Therapeutics and Regeneron and they're partnering. And we believe that's a stronger relationship for Intellia for that particular pipeline asset. Having the two together can sometimes be a really strong force. And Regeneron specifically, I think, has a very strong emphasis on next-gen sequencing. They have a genomic testing center. They're very forward-thinking. They also have a partnership with Nylem. We think that in terms of gene and, and cell therapy, actually, Regeneron is quite innovative. When you speak of the marginal changes in the return on investment, what do those look like? And where's the tipping point? for the companies that you've invested in? So those are currently happening. And how we do that is we look for the cost to be declining where the demand is really rising. And, and we're seeing that now, right? With a lot of these technologies, they're innovatively looking for different ways to decrease cost. So I think like as we continue to find new ways to innovate on old approaches to cell and gene therapy, the cost will continue to decline. And the demand is continuing to rise. And we're continuing to see these go into trials of earlier stage therapies, which has a bigger market, as well as solid tumors, which also has a bigger market and unmet need because liquid tumors have curative therapies, whereas solid tumors do not. Big Pharma, for example, has been a significant investor in many of these smaller businesses, the smaller companies that are doing this innovative, disruptive research. There's obviously competing interests between big pharma and the disruptive healthcare companies that you guys have selected, that you've researched. Do you foresee 
uh, rotation away from some of the big cap pharma into some of the small cap businesses that you own, there's going to be a tipping point where some of these businesses start to interfere with the, the, the long-standing business. Like, for example, if there's a cure for diabetes, that would have a significant impact on, on the companies down the road that are producing drugs for diabetics. Yeah. Right? That's, so, yeah. so that's when that actually does come to pass. When something comes along that's actually a cure for diabetes or for cancer or any other disorder, how does that affect big cap pharma? And then, of course, there's the uptake from these emerging businesses themselves. So there's a lot in there that we need to unpack. I think they're all really good questions. The one thing that I'll say is if you want to cure a disease, it's going to be more expensive for the consumer, but also for the pharmaceutical company, of course. So if you look at the average average cost of a chronic cancer treatment and you compare it to a gene therapy that has a curative intent. So let's say a chronic cancer treatment is 158,000 and the gene therapy is 400,000, let's say. That's about how much it is. But then if you just saw that, wouldn't you say, well, that's really expensive, 400,000 versus about 200,000. Hmm, that's crazy. But if you look at the average life years that you gain from being on a cancer gene therapy versus a chronic cancer treatment, you would say in incremental life years gained, I've gained about 3x from being on a cancer gene therapy because I'm taking a one-shot cure and I'm good to go versus a chronic cancer treatment, which A, I don't know how I'll do on it. And B, I'm going to have to take it systemically, like every three weeks or every month, whatever my dosing schedule is like. So then if you think about it and you compare them, the average cost of cancer care per life you're gained, it actually appears that the gene therapy is cheaper. Because while the list price is actually higher, it's about two to three times higher, Gene therapies can be more cost-effective because of life years gained when you think about it. So I think that all goes to say that pharmaceutical companies need to be incentivized to come up with cures. And what I mean by that is that their prices are going to be outlandish, right? Zolgensma, which is a gene therapy, it's a Novartis drug, and it is about $2.5 million for the dose. Yeah, just a little chump change for you. So it's very expensive, clearly. I would argue that we need to work with insurance companies and we need to try to make these things achievable because when you look at the long term, if you think of something like lung cancer, people typically go on therapy and they don't come off of it unless they've had their tumor shrunk. If they're being status quo, Oftentimes, you'll continue on a therapy until you progress or your cancer has grown by CT scan that you've confirmed that. And then you'll go on the next therapy and you'll stay on that until you progress. So if you think about so many factors, A, a person's well-being, not having to be on therapy all the time, just the amount of sheer chemo you're putting in your body is definitely not great from just your healthy normal cells perspective too the time you're taking to come into the hospital, so many factors you can consider that the the sticker price just seems so outlandish. But if you think about it from a life years gain perspective, but also just from a real comparison between them, that seems a lot more reasonable when you do that. So they need to charge those kind of prices because the R&D or the research and development phase is quite expensive. So they can't lose money on it because not every 
drug that they put into their pipeline will actually be commercialized. I think we need to incentivize pharmaceutical companies to allow this to happen. I think when you have these little innovative companies, like you were talking about, I think partnerships between pharmaceutical companies is going to become more and more prevalent because I think these smaller companies can be more nimble, do the research quicker. And so I think the pharmaceutical company will think that it's in their best interest to pay that smaller company rather than start from scratch with the R&D for a lot of assets. And a lot of them will probably be acquired by pharmaceutical companies because it's just going to be too big of an opportunity. Wow. It's fascinating. I think we've established that the potential for the sector for this particular baby of innovation, Lisa, as you put it, is very exciting. We're going to put links to some of the resources that you've created, the podcast and any other sort of collateral in our show notes. Lisa and Ali, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you, Ali. Thank you so much. You've been listening to my conversation with Lisa Lake Langley, CEO of Emerge Canada ARC ETFs, and Ali Ehrman, genomics analyst at ARC Invest. What struck me here is, and it's worth mentioning, is that if you look at the top 10 holdings of EAGB, You'll see some of the leading names in the genomics and biotech space. And more importantly, you'll see that the majority of these companies are not 50 to $100 billion market caps. That's what struck me. Most of these rapidly growing companies have market cap below $10 billion, some well below $5 billion at the time of this recording. Invitae Corp, ticker NVTA, $8 billion market cap. CRISPR Therapeutics, ticker CRSP, whose founder, Emmanuel Charpentier, just co-won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry along with Jennifer Doudna for their breakthrough in CRISPR gene editing, market cap $7.7 billion. Pacific Biosciences, ticker PACB, $2.7 billion. Arcturus Therapeutics that we talked about, whose mRNA technology, COVID vaccine, will be a single dose, under $2 billion market cap. Compugen Limited, ticker CGEN, $3.5 billion. Ceres Therapeutics, ticker MCRB, $2.7 billion. Iovance Biotherapeutics, ticker IOVA, $5.5 billion. Teladoc, ticker TDOC, $27.4 billion. And that's the exception in the list. But this is the leader in telehealth technologies. And Personalis, ticker PSNL, market cap of $1 billion. Wow, what a mouthful. I want to remind you, this is by no means advice to invest. So do your homework or seek the counsel of a professional or the folks at Emerge Canada ARC ETFs before investing. You can find Emerge Canada ARC ETFs at emergecm.ca. Thank you for listening. And please, please comment and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you. Let us know what you think about the topics we've discussed. Please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you have not already. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Make sure you give us a like and please, please leave us a rating and or a review. Ratings and reviews are extremely important. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll be back with you very soon. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Advisor Analyst. You can also find us and follow us on LinkedIn.
The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, may relate to securities held in the funds being discussed, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener, are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of investment advice by Emerge Canada Incorporated to that listener or generally, and do not result in any listener being considered a client or customer of Emerge. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute and should not be construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. No such offer or solicitation may be made prior to the delivery of definitive offering documentation. All investments carry the risk of loss. It is the responsibility of investors to do their own due diligence before investing in any of the funds mentioned in this podcast. While all information referred to is believed to be accurate, Emerge makes no express warranty as to the completeness of accuracy, and assumes neither responsibility nor control over the content, security or accuracy of the resources which are mentioned herein.